This is a Reconstructionist radio production. Please visit GaryNorth.com forward slash free books to download this book on PDF. The title of this book is Westminster's Confession, The Abandonment of Van Til's Legacy by Gary North, Institute for Christian Economics, Tyler, Texas. Copyright Gary North, 1991. Chapter 7. The Question of Millennialism. Quote, We who are reckoned as conservatives in theology are seriously misrepresented if we are regarded as men who are holding desperately to something that is old merely because it is old and are inhospitable to new truths. On the contrary, we welcome new discoveries with all our heart, and we are looking, in the Church, not merely for a continuation of conditions that now exist, but for a burst of new power. My hope of that new power is greatly quickened by contact with the students of Westminster Seminary. There, it seems to me, we have an atmosphere that is truly electric. It would not be surprising if some of these men might become the instruments, by God's grace, of lifting preaching out of the sad rut into which it has fallen, and of making it powerful again for the salvation of men. End quote. J. Gresham Machen, 1932. Westminster Seminary and Reformed Presbyterians in general need to return to the optimistic vision of the future presented by Machen in 1932. In the midst of his courageous battle against theological liberalism in the Presbyterian Church, USA, as a postmillennialist of the Princeton Seminary variety, he believed in a coming discontinuity, a burst of new power. In 1925 essay, Faith and Knowledge, he made a very similar statement. Indeed, the first sentence in the 1932 passage was lifted almost verbatim from the 1925 essay. Why not recycle good passages? I surely do. He announced, quote, A revival of the Christian religion, we believe, will deliver mankind from its present bondage, and like the great revival of the 16th century will bring liberty to mankind. End quote. Sadly, he failed to articulate his postmillennial eschatology or defend it exegetically, and his successors at Westminster abandoned it. The amillennialism of Dutch Calvinism soon triumphed at Westminster. His academic and ecclesiastical successors have had no faith in the burst of new power that he dreamed of. In this sense, it is the Christian Reconstruction movement that is the spiritual heir of Machen. A different millennial view is taught at Westminster today, and has been for fifty years. It rests on a rejection of God's historical sanctions set forth in the Old Testament. The amillennialist, or realized millennialist, insists that it is illegitimate to appeal back to the Old Testament in search of a message of visible, historical, covenantal faithfulness on God's part in the New Testament era. Amillennialists understand what the Old Testament says, but they are compelled by their eschatology to deny that we should accept the Old Testament's covenantal message at face value. They contrast the New Testament's supposed message of humiliation and exile for the Church with the Old Testament's far more straightforward message of covenantal predictability. Writes Richard Gaffin, Professor of Systematic Theology at Westminster Seminary, quote, Briefly, the basic issue is this. Is the New Testament to be allowed to interpret the Old as the best, 
most reliable, interpretive tradition in the history of the Church, and certainly the Reformed tradition, has always insisted, dot, dot, dot. Or, alternatively, will the Old Testament, particularly prophecies like Isaiah 32, 1-8, and 65, 17-25, become the hermeneutical fulcrum? End quote. What of this initial presupposition, namely, that the New Testament teaches suffering and cultural defeat for the prosecutors of God's covenant lawsuit, the gospel of Jesus Christ, throughout history? Can this claim be substantiated exegetically? No. But it has been repeated so often in the 20th century that most Calvinistic Christians probably think that it can be and has been substantiated exegetically. This is because they are unfamiliar with the Anglo-American Calvinist tradition. They do not recognize the continental accents of those Calvinistic theologians who articulate eschatology today. Progressive Sanctification Because this doctrine is so often ignored by Christians, especially those few who bother to comment on the covenantal meaning of New Covenant history, I need to remind the reader of the biblical doctrine of sanctification. God grants judicially the perfect humanity of Christ to each individual convert to saving faith in Christ. This takes place at the point of his or her conversion. Subsequently, this implicit, definitive moral perfection is to be worked out in history. We are to strive for the mark. We are to run the good race, strive to win it, by the way, not to hope for a covenantal tie, for example, pluralism. We are to imitate Christ's perfect humanity, though of course not his divinity, which is an incommunicable attribute. The doctrine of definitive sanctification, if taken by itself, would mean that a redeemed individual is perfect. Certain perfectionist sects and cults have taught this, but this is clearly not Christian orthodoxy. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. 1 John 1.8 On the other hand, if the doctrine of progressive sanctification as a pure gift of God is not balanced, but the doctrine of definitive sanctification as a pure gift of God, then it would appear as though man can save himself by his own efforts. For example, that he is not the dependent recipient of God's grace throughout history. It would deny the maturation process. We need both doctrines. It is my argument in Millennialism and Social Theory and in my book Dominion and Common Grace that these same dual concepts of definitive and progressive sanctification apply to corporate groups, especially covenantal associations, and above all, the Church. Thus, the fact that the Church has been definitively granted Christ's moral perfection does not deny the possibility and moral necessity of its progressive sanctification in history. Similarly, the fact that there is progressive sanctification in history does not in any way deny the fact of Christ's perfection, which was definitively granted to the Church at the point of its covenant-based creation. This applies also to the family and the state. This simple concept completely baffles Professor Gaffin. He has read My Dominion in Common Grace, for he offers a brief, exegetically unsupported sentence criticizing its cover, but, predictably, refuses to refer to its thesis or its documentation, and even this he confines to a footnote. He ignores the book's documentation. It should be noted that in his essay against Christian Reconstruction, Gaffin does not once cite any Reconstructionist author in the body of the text, and includes only three brief footnote references, 
one to my book's cover illustration, and two to David Chilton's Paradise Restored. In fact, most of the essays in this compilation are remarkably devoid of actual citations of our writings, except Bonson's Theonomy. To say that this is, this is a peculiar way to respond to a movement that has published well over 100 volumes of books and scholarly journals, plus 25 years of newsletters, is, to say the least, revealing. But, as I always say, you can't beat something with nothing. I think the faculty at Westminster Seminary understands this, so they have avoided direct confrontations with the primary sources of Christian Reconstructionism. Here is Dr. Gaffin's position. Quote, Nothing has been more characteristic of current postmillennialism than its emphasis on the kingship of the ascended Christ. Nothing fires the postmill vision more than that reality. Yet it is just this reality that postmillennialism effectively compromises and, in part, even denies. Dot, dot, dot. Emphasis on the golden era as being entirely future leaves the unmistakable impression that the church's present and past is something other than golden, and that so far in its history the church is less than victorious. End quote. Less than victorious? If what the church has experienced over the past 1900 years is a victory equal to what the Bible promises God's people in history for their covenantal faithfulness in history, Deuteronomy 28, 1-14, then I would surely hate to see a defeat. He then insists, quote, The New Testament, however, will not tolerate such a construction. End quote. What he means is that he will not tolerate such a construction. The New Testament does. Quote, For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. For he hath put all things under his feet. But when he saith all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is accepted, which did put all things under him. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. End quote. 1 Corinthians 15, 25-28 This footstool condition of God's enemies is definitive, as Gaffin knows, for he correctly cites Ephesians 1, 22, quote, and hath put all things under his feet, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, end quote. But why does he deny the progressive aspect of this definitive victory? Because he rejects the idea of the kingdom's victory in history. He is an amillennialist. Progress in the creeds? If I were to ask Professor Gaffin if he has a great appreciation for the Westminster Confession of Faith, he would tell me that he does. I would then ask him, quote, do you appreciate it more than the Athanasius Creed or the Nicene Creed? End quote. If he says yes, he has just accepted the concept of creedal progress in history. If he says no, he has just submitted his resignation from Westminster Seminary. So I suppose he would answer that, quote, each has its proper place in the church, end quote, as indeed each does. I would hate to have to sing the Westminster Confession of Faith each Sunday morning the way I sing the Nicene Creed. But if I were to ask him if the Westminster Confession is more theologically rigorous than earlier creeds, he would tell me it is. It was the product of centuries of creedal advance. So, Professor Gaffin, I now ask you this. Can you imagine the possibility that the Westminster Confession will be improved upon as time goes on? Yes. Then are you now ready to begin working on such an improvement? I know I am. But more to the point, do you think such improvements in creedal formulations will parallel and reinforce the maturation of the church? 
Finally, will such maturation have positive effects in society? If not, then are you saying that the progress of the church and the creeds is socially irrelevant? Please be specific. And when you have got your answers ready, don't forget to discuss them with your students. Perhaps some of them may remind you of this assignment periodically. They do pay for your salary. Let us continue this time with the family. The marital vows are definitive. The working out of these vows in the lives of a married couple is progressive. Love, honor, obey, cherish, etc. Are we to say that an older couple has in no way matured covenantally since their wedding day? No. But does this in any way denigrate the integrity of those original vows taken so long ago? No. The vows were definitive. The covenantal process of both personal and corporate maturing in terms of these vows is progressive. This is so clear that even seminary professors ought to be able to understand it. They won't, of course. They acknowledge dual sanctification with respect to the individual Christian. But as soon as you raise the possibility that sanctification in both aspects also applies to institutions, you get a blank stare. What we might call blank stare apologetics. If pressed, the professor might respond, I see. He doesn't. Maturation beyond the cloister and the family. Now, let us get to the heart of the matter, the application of biblical law and its sanctions to the world outside of the institutional church and the family, leading progressively to the triumph of Christendom in history. Here is where the pietist gags. The peasant cannot tolerate the suggestion that the same principle of definitive and progressive sanctification applies to Christian societies, despite the fact that it applies to the church and to the Christian family. What biblical principle do they invoke to prove the existence of such an interpretive discontinuity between the world outside church and family and inside the church and family? None. There is none. They simply refuse to discuss what they have done. They assert, as Gaffin asserts, that any concept of covenantal progress in history outside the church and family is biblically illegitimate. His language is so strong in this regard that he could become as confrontationally rhetorical as I am if he would just work at it. He has clearly displayed the basic talent. Now he just needs to develop it. Gaffin's problem is that he holds to the theology of Eastern Orthodoxy with respect to history. Moral progress only through suffering. No Calvinist amillennial theologian has articulated this position any more clearly. He has developed an entire worldview based on this presupposition. He calls this his most substantial reservation against postmillennialism. It has taken 17 years of theological pressuring since Rush Dooney's Institutes of Biblical Law was published to get so forthright a statement out of a Calvinist, a millennialist. No one has demonstrated more visibly the accuracy of Rush Dooney's judgment. Amillennialists are premillennialists without earthly hope. Personal Moral Progress Only Through Suffering Gaffin calls amillennialism inaugurated eschatology a variant of realized eschatology. Understand, this is the equivalent of definitive eschatology. There would be nothing wrong with it if it had the necessary complement, progressive eschatology. But he is appalled by the very thought of progressive eschatology, for it would necessarily deny the heart of his ethical system, personal maturation through suffering. We need persecution in history. Quote, the inaugurated eschatology of the New Testament is least of all the basis for triumphalism in the Church, at whatever point prior to Christ's return. Over the interadvental period in its entirety, from beginning to end, 
a fundamental aspect of the church's existence is to be, quote, suffering with Christ, end quote. Nothing the New Testament teaches is more basic to its identity than that, end quote. He cites 2 Corinthians 4, 7, quote, But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us, end quote. This imagery of man as a vessel is familiar in Scripture. Paul uses it in Romans 9, quote, Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Has not the powder power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had afore prepared unto glory, even us, whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. End quote. Romans nine, twenty through twenty four. The question is not whether we are vessels. The question is, which vessels get progressively smashed by God in history, the vessels of wrath, or the vessels of glory? The answer to this question is biblically clear, and nowhere is it clearer than in Psalm two, one of the most disconcerting Bible passages for the amillennialist. Quote, why did the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings. Be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and ye perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. End quote. Psalm 2. Lest we imagine that this is merely another Old Testament proof text, consider Revelation 2, 26-29, And he that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. As the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to ship, even as I received of my father, and I will give him the morning star. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. End quote. There is a twofold process of overcoming, personal and cultural. They are linked ethically and judicially. They are also linked eschatologically. This means historically. Clay jars, Gaffin writes, are believers, quote, in all their mortality and fragility. End quote. Well, so what? What does this professor of systematic theology think covenant breakers are made of? Stainless steel? But, as with every amillennialist, he gets his biblical imagery backwards. He sees the Christians as clay pots and the covenant breakers as rods of iron, from now until doomsday. It is true that the covenant breaker is sometimes employed by God as a rod against us, negative sanctions in history, but never apart from the promise of a future reversal of the sanctioning relationship. Quote, and it shall come to pass in that day that the remnant of Israel 
and such as are escaped of the house of Jacob, shall no more again stay upon him that smote them, but shall stay upon the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. The remnant shall return, even the remnant of Jacob, unto the mighty God. For though the, thy people's Israels be as the sand of the sea, yet a remnant of them shall return. The consumption decreed shall overflow with righteousness. The Lord God of hosts shall make a consumption, even determined, in the midst of all the land. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God of hosts, O my people that dwellest in Zion, be not afraid of the Assyrian. He shall smite thee with a rod, and shall lift up his staff against thee, after the manner of Egypt. Forget a very little while, and the indignation shall cease, and mine anger in their destruction. And the Lord of hosts shall stir up a scourge for him according to the slaughter of Midian at the rock of Oreb. And as his rod was upon the sea, so shall he lift it up after the manner of Egypt. And it shall come to pass in that day that his burden shall be taken away from off thy shoulder and his yoke from off thy neck, and the yoke shall be destroyed because of the anointing. End quote. Isaiah 10, 20-27 After the manner of Egypt Every covenant keeper is supposed to remember what happened to Egypt after that nation broke the Israelites' vessels. Destruction in history. But such a message of reversed roles of victory, Gaffin says, is strictly limited to Old Testament history. It has nothing to do with the history of the Church of the Resurrected Christ. How do we know this? Because of Philippians 3.10, quote, That I may know him, and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death. End quote. He then spends several pages explaining Christ's sufferings and his death. He defines Christ's resurrection in terms of his suffering. Here is without a doubt the heart of the amillennial message, a message of incomparable pessimism. Quote, By virtue of union with Christ, Paul is saying, the power of Christ's resurrection is realized in the sufferings of the believer. Sharing in Christ's sufferings is the way the church manifests his resurrection power. End quote. Again, quote, To know, experience Christ is to experience the power of his resurrection, and that, in turn, is to experience the fellowship of his sufferings, a total reality that can then be summed up as conformity to Christ's death. End quote. Question. Isn't to, quote, know, experience Christ, end quote, to experience also the victory of his bodily resurrection and his bodily ascension to the right hand of God? Not in Gaffin's theology. He never even mentions this possibility. The Christian Reconstructionist and the traditional postmillennialist answer, the total reality of Christian living is a great deal more than, quote, conformity to Christ's death, end quote. The total reality of Christian living is our comprehensive, progressive conformity in history to the total historical reality of Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension. Amillennial theologians publicly ignore the existence of such an interpretation. We can hardly blame them, given the limits of their eschatology and the even greater limits of its appeal. Prior to World War II, the great amillennial Dutch theologian Claus Schilder wrote a trilogy, Christ and His Suffering, Christ on Trial, and Christ Crucified. He needed three more volumes, Christ in the Grave, Christ Resurrected, and Christ Ascended. But there is not much to say about Christ in the Grave, and amillennialists get very nervous discussing Christ Resurrected, let alone Christ Ascended. They interpret the history of the Church in terms of Schilder's three volumes. They do not think culturally and socially except in these terms. The Dutch in Kuiper's day 
and Childers Day tried to design a Christian culture, but without Old Testament law. World War II and its aftermath ended all such attempts. Childers' trilogy was resurrected in Van Risen's Sociology of Suffering, which Gaffin has adopted. Resurrection, then Crucifixion Gaffin insists that the Bible's, quote, eschatology of victory is an eschatology of suffering, end quote. Then he adds what he regards as his coup de grace, quote, Until Jesus comes again, the church wins by losing, end quote. He then asks a rhetorical question, quote, What has happened to this theology of the cross in much of contemporary postmillennialism, end quote? I shall provide him the answer. It has been modified by the theology of resurrection and ascension. Professor Gaffin has managed to reverse the sociological orders of events at Calvary. In his sociology of suffering, the crucifixion follows Christ's death and resurrection. He argues, as clearly as anyone ever has, that our historical condition is to be crucified with Christ. Resurrection is strictly a post-historical experience. But Gaffin has a problem. Jesus Christ announced the Great Commission only after his resurrection. Gaffin's sociology of suffering would reverse Matthew 27 and 28. For Gaffin, the Great Commission is a message of cultural crucifixion. In all honesty, the Roman Catholic crucifix should be Gaffin's symbol of the Great Commission, not the empty cross of Protestantism. The crucifix is appropriate for the Roman Church, which is also amillennial. Those of us who are postmillennial much prefer the symbol of the empty cross. It conforms to our eschatology. So does the empty tomb. Yes, we take up our cross to follow him, but that burden is easy, Matthew 11.30. It is not a burden so crushing that Christians are beaten down historically. Carrying the cross of Christ means extending his kingdom in history, not being pushed out by Satan's leaven. It is Satan's doom in history to suffer progressive frustration, not the churches. It is his representatives who are called upon to suffer as God's kingdom unfolds in history. Christ was nailed to the cross so that Satan could be nailed to the wall. What is true of Satan is also true of his kingdom. Gaffin presents the reader with this rhetorical question. Quote, is it really overreacting to say that such triumphalism is repugnant to biblical sensibilities? End quote. Now, there are perfectly good uses for rhetorical questions, even aggressive questions. But there are risks, too. Your target may have an opportunity to respond. He may rework your rhetorical question, changing only one word, making you the target. He may ask, quote, Is it really overreacting to say that such masochism is repugnant to biblical sensibilities? End quote. Some readers may prefer triumphalism to masochism not Gaffin. Quote, Suffering is a function of the futility decay principle pervasively at work in the creation since the fall. Suffering is everything that pertains to creaturely experience of this death principle. Dot, dot, dot. Until then, at Christ's return, the suffering, futility, decay principle in creation remains in force, undiminished, but sure to be overcome. It is an enervating factor that cuts across the church's existence, including its mission, in its entirety. The notion that this frustration factor will be demonstrably reduced and the church's suffering service 
notice, noticeably alleviated and even compensated in a future era before Christ's return is not merely foreign to this passage. It trivializes as well as blurs both the present suffering and the future hope glory. Until his return, the church remains one step behind its exalted Lord. His exaltation means its privileged humiliation. His return, and not before, its exaltation. End quote. Christ is now resurrected, yet the church will continue to be humiliated. Christ has ascended, yet the church will continue to be crucified. Were Christ's resurrection and ascension historical? Yes, says Orthodox Christianity. Will the church experience a progressive taste of either resurrection or ascension in its effect on culture and history? No, says the amillennialist. The Great Commission is a commission to a millennium of defeat. Understand what this means. Gaffin says it well. The church of Jesus Christ in history remains one step behind the Lord. But the church's experience is humiliation throughout history. So what does this tell us of Jesus Christ's influence in history? who is just one step ahead of his church. Except for saving individual souls, his influence is nil, zip, nada. Quote, Satan 1000, Christ 0, end quote. This is the essence of the amillennial view of history. It reduces covenant theology to pietistic anabaptism, save souls, not culture. It is premillennialism without earthly hope. It is New Amsterdam's confession, once the verbiage is stripped away. The Addiction to Verbiage Sadly, Gaffin simply could not leave it at this. It was not in him. Having produced a masterpiece of amillennial masochism, he could not resist the lure of the standard Dutch double-talk. He shifts to the familiar language of optimism in the appropriately titled subsection, quote, The Church in the Wilderness, end quote. He denies that he has proclaimed, quote, an anemic, escapist Christianity of cultural surrender. Without question, the Great Commission continues fully in force with its full cultural breath until Jesus returns, dot, dot, dot. That mandate, then, is bound to have a robust, leavening impact, one that will redirect every area of life and transform not only individuals, but, through them, corporately, as the Church, their cultures, it already has done so and will continue to do so until Jesus comes, end quote. Leaven again? The leaven of victory? The leaven of victory in history? The leaven of victory in culture? But he has already denied this possibility with respect to the general culture. So what does he mean here by culture? He means the institutional church. What this means is this. The only culture that the Great Commission of Christ's Gospel actually leavens in history is the institutional church. It's ghetto time. What, then, is the true meaning of history? We never get a straight answer from the amillennialist. What we get first is double-talk. Gaffin denies that his view of Christ's kingdom is static. Quote, If, as some charge, this position is staticism, involving a static view of history, so be it. But it is not a staticism that eliminates real, meaningful progress in history. End quote. Second, we get verbiage. Quote, it is, we may say, the staticism of eschatological dynamism, staticism in the sense of the kingly permanence of the exalted Christ being effectively manifested in its full, diverse, and ultimately incalculable, unpredictable grandeur over the entire interadvental period from beginning to end, end quote. What does this mean, you ask? 
It means that Calvinistic amillennialism has no doctrine of historical progress and no doctrine of covenantal cause and effect in history. It means that the covenantal promise of God to enforce His law by means of direct sanctions, Deuteronomy 28, was chronologically limited to the Old Covenant era, and even then, only inside national Israel, except for that one confounding case of Nineveh. It means that Dr. Gaffin is as embarrassed as all the other peasant millennialists are by the obvious implications of their eschatologies. They do not want to be called cultural defeatists just because they happen to be cultural defeatists. They want to clothe themselves in the optimistic language of post-millennialism. So the amillennialists' strategy is to spray verbiage all over the page. In contrast, the premillennialist keeps talking about how great it is going to be on the far side of Armageddon. There is another academic strategy, however. Offer no cultural alternative, but criticize the present humanist world order relentlessly. This does not change anything but at least it allows Christians, in Gaffin's words, to get in a few licks. Thus, one avoids controversial specific transgressions, such as abortion. I will be more impressed when they focus on this one issue as the representative transgression of the whole society. Until then, criticism of the humanist order in general remains little more than a verbal smokescreen for inaction. It is the theologian's systematic refusal to bring a specific covenant lawsuit against the God-rejecting society. They do not believe that God will prosecute such a lawsuit in history by imposing His negative sanctions, so they see no impelling reason to bring it. In contrast, the theonomist asks, quote, What level of progressively accumulating sanctions is now hanging over a nation that executes a million and a half unborn infants each year? End quote. There will be no tenured security anywhere in a society that comes under such, such sanctions. The Consequences of Christ's Resurrection and Ascension For many years, I have taunted non-theonomists with this slogan, quote, You can't beat something with nothing, end quote. They have said nothing public in response, but they have not needed to. Their implicit answer is clear. It is based self-consciously on their two or three pesimillennial eschatologies, quote, with respect to, this, to social theory, we know we have nothing culturally to offer, but since God does not really expect the church to defeat anything cultural in history anyway, nothing is all we need, end quote. The more intellectually sophisticated among them have contended themselves with writing critical analysis of modern humanist culture. By implication, they are calling Christians to avoid the pits of Babylon. But calling Christians to, quote, come out from among them, end quote, without also providing at least an outline of a cultural alternative to come into, for example, to construct, is simply to mimic the fundamentalism of an earlier era. No liquor, no cigarettes, no social dancing, and no movies. It is a scholarly version of fundamentalism's old refrain. Quote, we don't smoke, we don't chew, and we don't go with the boys who do. End quote. We cannot seriously expect to recruit dedicated, intellectually serious people into, quote, full-time Christian service, end quote, with a worldview that says little more than, quote, we don't go to R-rated movies, end quote. So what good are these negative intellectual critiques? They serve as outlets for highly frustrated Christian intellectuals to produce other highly frustrated Christian intellectuals. I shall put it as bluntly as I can. Amillennialism is an eschatology that ignores the theological, intellectual, and social consequences of the fact that both Christ's resurrection and His ascension were events in history. 
These were trans-historical events too, but they were events in history. Deny this, and you remove the very heart of Christianity. If Christ did not rise in history, then our faith is vain. Theological liberals, like the Pharisees before them, fully understand this. They deny the historicity of Christ's resurrection in their attempt to destroy the church. They are following the rival, Great Commission, of the enemies of Christ, which is recorded in the text of Matthew's Gospel immediately prior to Jesus' issuing of His Great Commission to the church. Quote, now when they were going, behold, some of the watch came into the city, and showed unto the chief priests all the things that were done. And when they were assembled with the elders, and had taken counsel, they gave large money unto the soldiers, saying, Say ye, his disciples came by night, and stole him away while he slept. And if this come to the governor's ears, we will persuade him and secure you. So they took the money and did as they were taught. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day." End quote. Matthew twenty-eight eleven through fifteen. Bible-believing Christians must publicly affirm the reality of the bodily resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ in history. This means that Christians must also affirm the consequences of both the resurrection and the ascension, including their social and cultural consequences. All millennialism's hermeneutic of persecution is therefore not valid as a primary classification device to evaluate the entire work of the Church in history. There is more to the progress of the Church in history than its persecution. In short, there is more to Christianity's victory in history than its hypothetical cultural defeat in history. But this is what amillennialism explicitly and self-consciously denies. It proclaims cultural defeat. It calls this defeat victory. Herbert Schlossberg understands that there has to be more to the interpretation of history than this. But as an amillennialist and a non-theonomist, he does not speculate in public about what this might be. He writes, quote, We need a theological interpretation of disaster, dot, 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 end quote. The Church has needed this for many centuries. So have the humanists. The devastating Lisbon earthquake of 1755 shook not just the foundations of Lisbon. It shook the foundation of Enlightenment optimism. So have major catastrophes ever since. If man is essentially good, then why do such terrible things happen to large numbers of us? What the Bible has given us is a covenantal theory of disaster. Men will be called to account in history by God whenever they systematically refuse to obey His Bible-revealed laws. But this is too much to swallow for millions of Christians and billions of non-Christians who agree on one thing. God's Bible-revealed laws for society are null and void today. So are His sanctions. The Final Judgment Gaffin ends his essay with a footnote, one which makes a very important point, though astoundedly misleading. He argues that the final judgment is part of history. Nothing could be farther from the accepted use of language. The final judgment is the consummation of history, a radical, discontinuous event that cannot be accelerated or retarded by any normal continuous actions of men in history. It is exclusively God's intervention into the historical process. It will, in fact, abolish the historical process. Quote, the enemy that sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the world, and the reapers are the angels. As therefore the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so shall it be in the end of this world. End quote. Matthew thirteen, thirty-nine through forty. This is the end of, not an aspect of, the historical process. He offers his theory of why people become premillennialists and postmillennialists. They seek evidence of God's sanctions in history. 
I believe he is correct. This is surely what my book, Millennialism and Social Theory, 1990, is all about. But this search, in Gaffin's eyes, is a major misunderstanding of the Bible. He pulls no punches. I really do appreciate his vitriolic, confrontational style, so unlike the normal academic discourse of theologians. It helps to keep the readers awake. My main regret is that he put this gem in a footnote. Vitriol ought to be right up there in the middle of the text where it belongs. As I said before, Gaffin has the polemical gift. My disappointment is his use of a wishy-washy academic phrase, it seems. Quote, My surmise is that, for many, a significant factor disposing them toward either a pre-mill or post-mill position stems from etherealized, even insipid, less-than-biblical understandings of the eternal state. Such rarefied, colorless conceptions give rise to the conviction, compounded by a missing or inadequate awareness of the realized eschatology taught in Scripture, that eventually God must somehow, quote, get in his licks, end quote, and, quote, settle things, end quote, in history, as distinct from eternity. But what is the eternal order than the consummation of history, the historical process come to its final fruition? The new heavens and earth inaugurated at Christ's return will be the climactic vindication of God's covenant and, so, his final historical triumph, the ultimate realization of his purposes for the original creation, forfeited by the first Adam and secured by the last, inherent in both a post-mill and a pre-mill outlook, it seems, is the tendency, at least, toward an unbiblical, certainly unreformed separation, or even polarization of creation and redemption eschatology." End quote. The new heavens and new earth are exclusively future, he insists, contrary to Isaiah 65, 17-23. Professor Gaffin preaches a, quote, realized eschatology, end quote, except when it actually comes to real, realized eschatology. Then he preaches deferred eschatology, victory beyond history. He tells us that Jesus secured what Adam forfeited. Indeed, Christ regained title to the whole world. Adam had the legal authorization from God to leave an inheritance to his heirs. So does Jesus. But all millennialists insist that Jesus merely secured title. Title will not be transferred to his people progressively in history. Again, this is, quote, definitivism, end quote, apart from progressivism. It is the fundamental theological error of all amillennialism. It has no vision of the progressive realization of Christ's definitive conquest in history. Christ's conquest in history is assumed to be based exclusively on power, not on covenantal faithfulness, and it will be achieved only ultimately, for example, outside of history, in heaven, church triumphant, and at the end of history, church resurrected. It supposedly has nothing to do with the church militant history. In amillennialism, there is no progressive kingdom development in history toward the present triumphant condition of the church in heaven. While our citizenship is in heaven, this heavenly, quote, passport, end quote, progressively entitles us only to the kinds of rights and benefits given to someone in Iraq who holds an Israeli passport. This defeatist outlook on church history is equally true of premillennialism. The result is predictable. The church militant has become, in our day, the church wimpotent. Some critics of Reconstructionism resent our calling amillennialism pessimistic. Yet the system is intensely pessimistic. There is no developed system called, quote, optimistic amillennialism, end quote. There can be none. Occasionally an amillennialist admits the fact in print. 
In a review of Kenneth Gentry's book, Before Jerusalem Fell, Reverend Stuart Jones, a Westminster graduate, forthrightly admitted the correctness of our accusation when he challenged the book's argument for a pre-80-70 date. While he did not actually summarize the author's thesis or provide a coherent alternative, Reverend Jones did make his position clear. Quote, This weakens the argument for preterism, present rather than future fulfillment, and leaves room for pessimism. End quote. He learned his millennialism well at Westminster. Pessimism, as a way of Christian thinking, must be defended. He is a staunch defender of pessimism. So are his eschatological peers. Conclusion If this is, quote, realized, end quote, eschatology, I'd prefer another option. So would a lot of other Christians, which is why Calvinistic amillennialism cannot recruit and keep the brighter, more activist students. Gaffin tells his disciples that they, like the church, have a lifetime of frustration ahead of them. This comforts the pietists among them, but it drives the activists in the direction of covenantal postmillennialism, which offers a consistent and Bible-based alternative. Gaffin's amillennialism of pre-1940 Holland cannot compete effectively against it. Naturally, the amillennialists at Westminster, as far as I can tell, this means the entire faculty, believe that amillennialism is quite serviceable, but there is a problem. They have not yet begun to articulate the kind of social theory that amillennialism produces. Deuteronomy 28 provides the Christian Reconstructionist with the judicial foundation of social theory. It presents a case for God's predictable historical sanctions. It offers hope to covenant keepers regarding the long-term efficacy of their efforts on earth and in history. In short, it offers them the possibility of transferring to their covenantal heirs the judicial foundations for building Christendom. But amillennialists deny the New Testament reality of Deuteronomy 28 and its sanctions. They deny that, over time, covenant-keeping produces victory. They offer to their spiritual heirs only the prospects of assured defeat in history. They offer them the sociology of suffering. Theonomists also proclaim a sociology of suffering. However, we proclaim it to the covenant breakers. This makes all the difference. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom.